Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Sophia. And you're listening to Every Rom-Com, the podcast where we have fun taking romantic comedies seriously. This week on Every Rom-Com, we're getting right to the heart of Gen X with a visit to Seattle's grunge scene. We'll talk about how old technology affected dating, from landlines and answering machines to the world of video dating. And we'll talk about the fantastic ensemble cast from Cameron Crowe's second film, 1992's Singles. Hello, Sophia. Hi, Jen. How are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm excited because this is the first time on the Gen X series that I have another Gen X person doing the podcast with me. So that's pretty cool. Um, interesting that uh, I'm your first Gen Xer. That's exciting. What did those young people have to say about? <laughs> I mean, actually, they weren't that young. I They're know. like, you know, elder millennials, our friends here. But yeah, yes. like... I, I I do like though that like I'm now podcasting with someone who there's a chance you saw the movie at the same time it came out roughly mm. and we had some of those same experiences Ugh. of discovering that culture as teenagers Ugh. which I think is yeah pretty special yeah well yeah I you know the date though I guess I was I mean I was 14 um, and I don't know if I saw this right when it came out I kind of think not I kind of I definitely rented it. Because I believe Martin from Goldmine Video, who we've mentioned before from our our youth um, at the video store, he's like, oh, the soundtrack alone is to die for. Um, <laughs> so it was upon his recommendation. I mean, and I loved it. So maybe I was like 15 when I saw it, but still. Gimini. Yeah. 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 And speaking of the soundtrack, like, so one of the things that's like just very iconic and important about the generation X is the music and the grunge and alternative music of the nineties. And so I was kind of like wondering, like, were you into the grunge and alternative music? What were some of the favorite bands you were listening to during the early nineties? Like, or what other music were you listening to? If not that? Well, you know, yeah, I kind of, whatever, you know, very much radio. So whatever was, popular on the radio and even some of that grunge or kind of alternative sounds that were on the radio it wasn't until later that i got into any pearl jam i think i've got maybe two albums of theirs i never owned any smashing pumpkins but it's one of my favorites now because that was one of my husband's favorites it is still his favorite and um i had this soundtrack but you know what my favorites were kind of the more poppy tune the na 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 that one and the paul westerberg okay uh-huh. yeah. and uh waterfall that's the but that was older that's, jimmy hendrix yep. yeah, yeah. yeah jimmy hendrix. um but like those other Soundgarden, no it's not really one of my faves i'd stone so, temple so, pilots i don't know okay you know yeah, that that's in that that's stone in that family temple, yeah. weezer um does bush is bush in there do they count? I would put that later, but yeah. Is that later? <laughs> I, would put Bush, I, I would put Bush a little later. I think that was more 96, 97. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. So I was listening to the radio, but I was listening to, I got tuned in somehow to Q101, which was the alternative radio out of Chicago. Okay. And 
Like, so I did get into like some of the alternative music and also I had MTV. Oh, like, I don't know if wow, you guys had no. MTV at your house. Yeah, we had MTV by that time. So I was like seeing, I don't think I was one of the earliest adopters of grunge and alternative music. I think I heard about it more from like um, these guys at our high school, Kaz Wisniewski and Aaron Dobbs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were, they were, the, <laughs> they, they were the hip, cool rock star guys, like at our high school, I guess you could say, or not rock star. No. They were like the, they were the cool, we have a band guys at our school. And like, so. they were talking about Nirvana. And so I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to listen to this. And I think, and then it was on MTV. So I listened to it and I had Nirvana like albums when I was younger, um, Green Day, Weezer, I didn't have Soundgarden, but I really loved Black Hole Sun, especially the video for Black uh, Hole Sun. I was yeah. obsessed with that. And and like Pearl Jam, I liked it, but I, I didn't love it. Right. So it was kind of like, I, but I did then, Q101 got me into though Liz Fair, oh, who yeah. is definitely part of the alternative and grunge music, but you know, more on the women's side, yeah. which eventually that led into stuff like, you know, Alanis and Sarah McLaughlin and the yes. whole Lilith Fair vibe. Right. Yeah. I'm feeling more like the things that I remember were later on, later in high school, early college, Sarah McLaughlin. I had Jewel, like Lilith Fair. I went to that. I went to that in Milwaukee. Wait, you went to it? I went to the wow. one. Yeah. Okay. I think it was the first one. Yes. Wow. Lilith. I was there, man. For Indigo Girls, you know, longtime yeah. fan. So we did indie and alternative, but we ended up doing more of the the women's side of that, I think, probably. Yeah. 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 But I, I was like very excited, though, to like feel that like a new music style was emerging within our generation. I did kind of have an awareness of that, along with our the indie movie scene that was emerging at the same time. I think I was more conscious of the indie movie scene. Like, obviously, I liked the music that was coming. I was just listening to it, but I wasn't thinking about it in the same way as I was film and like what was yeah. done. And that's similar to me. And I was in the early 90s, like before I was kind of aware of Nirvana and everything, I was more listening to soundtracks, movie soundtracks. Yeah. So when you talk about like the single soundtrack, yeah. I can really relate to that because a lot of music I got to know through soundtracks. Yep. So yeah. Same. Yeah. Same. Before we get started with today's episode, just a reminder, as usual on the show, we'll have a spoiler-free section at the beginning of the episode and we'll let you know when the spoiler section begins. We'd also like to remind you that you can follow the podcast on social media. Our Facebook page is Every Romcom Podcast and Blog. Our Instagram is at Every Romcom. And our Twitter handle is at Every Romcom Pod. And as always, you can find the podcast at everyromcom.com. Send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. And if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. And now, let's listen to the trailer for singles. Love is a game. You distinguish yourself by not calling her. Four days, you used to call me. Easy to start. It's a very nice hat you're wearing, and I don't mean that in an Eddie Haskell kind of way. Hard to finish. Linda, Bye, Steve. I left my blue t-shirt at If you can't find love, you settle for sex. I'm on the bed right now. Wearing something really outrageous. I think you got the wrong number, lady, but I'll be right over. In the absence of sex, you go for companionship. Uh, you want to get some dinner? Or busy? Um, how about some lunch? Have a lunch. Coffee? Water? How about some water? Soon you're just happy to have a friend. You know, in the parallel universe, we're probably a scorching couple. But in this one, neighbors. Of course, 
You can't sleep with friends. Singles. You know I see other people still. You don't fool me. Bridget Fonda. We made the connection, and when you make the connection, it's like chemistry takes care of itself. I mean, it makes its own decisions, you know? Campbell Scott. I was just uh, nowhere near your neighborhood. Kira Sedgwick. Did I overreact? Do you know who this is? Sheila Kelly. Could you seat me next to a single guy? I've got a special feeling about you. Jim True. And Matt Dillon. Janet, you rock my world. Singles. If I make this basket, that's fate telling me to call him. Wait, did no basket mean call him or don't call him? Never mind. Directed by Cameron Crowe. Yeah, when you talk about that song being the one you remember from the soundtrack, like, yes, because every time I so much as think of the existence of this movie, I hear that music in my head. Yeah, yeah. And then it stays there for a while Mm -hmm. and annoys me because actually it's not my favorite song. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yep. But wouldn't you say that feels like more poppy than grungy? You know, that one. Yes, that one for sure. Yeah, yeah. And like not all grunge, you know, was like super dark per se. Yeah, yeah. like would- so, or at least not alternative music of that area was super era was super dark anyway. Right. But yeah. Yeah. So Singles uh was released in nineteen ninety-two, written and directed by Cameron Crowe, who is now entering our repeat club on every rom com since we've covered uh one of his other films, starring Bridget Fonda, Campbell Scott, Kira Sedgwick, and Matt Dillon. And the basic premise is that Steve, Linda, Janet, Cliff, and their friends are single people living in Seattle in the early 90s. Janet is dating Cliff, a grunge musician, who's still seeing other people and not interested in committing to her. And Linda is afraid of getting involved in relationships after being burned by too many men, but she is gradually won over by Steve, whom she meets at a rock show. And the film follows these two couples and their friends as they try to find love. So I was able to find um, some interesting information about singles, um, mostly from articles in Rolling Stone, where Cameron Crowe, of course, used to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing I found out, Cameron Crowe moved to Seattle in the late 80s, and that's what allowed him to capture the spirit of the city and its and music scene just as it was emerging. Mm-hmm. While he was writing singles, he was um, actually at an event uh, where the music scene came together. So Andy Wood who was the lead singer of Mother Love Bone, which is the precursor band to Pearl Jam with most of the same members. He died. And after he he died, a lot of the music community in Seattle came together and were mourning his death and just supporting each other. And it was while Cameron Crowe was at this event that he decided to like rewrite and rework singles to be more about the way that friends and single people will come together to make a community like a family. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, He said, quote, it's the story of disconnected single people making their way, forming their own unspoken family, end quote. And I think in the nineties, that became a very popular motif in general. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I like that. We can talk more. Yeah. We can talk more about that as we go on, but yeah. Um, The movie includes live performances by Alice in Chains and Soundgarden And there's a lot of other presence of uh, grunge musicians of the era in the movie, too, including Cliff's band members are played by Eddie Vedder, Stone Gossard, and Jeff Ament of Pearl Jam. 
And apparently Warner Brothers wasn't really interested in releasing the film until after Nirvana hit it big. And then as soon as Nirvana hit it big and they realized they had this movie with this grunge scene in it, they wanted to change the title of the movie to Come As You Are, which Cameron Crowe strongly objected to. Good choice. (laughs) Yeah. That doesn't, yeah. And this is an excerpt from Cameron Crowe's diary that he kept while he was making singles. It was uh, put into like via Rolling Stone magazine. So quote, 4992, still no release date. A year after filming, the world has caught up with the bands and the music we built this movie around. Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Alice in Chains have all exploded. Epic, the label releasing our soundtrack, moves to put the music out now. Warner Brothers agrees and they quietly default into the only real title of this movie, Singles. The hometown music that helped inspire the script is now our best ally in getting the movie released. End quote. So it's kind of magic yeah. that Cameron Crowe happened to set his you know, love story in this music scene. Uh-huh. And, I, and I just think it's fantastic. I love that the soundtrack came out first, right? Like that was, mm-hmm. that was the buzz that, you yeah. know made the film such a big hit was its reputation for the music first. Very cool. And the movie cost $9 million to make and ended up grossing $18 million, which isn't a huge amount, but obviously it made a profit. Yeah. So there, there you go. And Cameron Crowe told Rolling Stone that apparently the TV show Friends started out as a pitch for a singles TV show, but Cameron Crowe wouldn't agree to make a singles TV show and it became Friends. This is according to Cameron Crowe. And, you know, I can see, I didn't watch Friends very much except for a little glimpse here and there, but I could see the connection. Yeah. What about you? Yeah. Just in that idea of like, everyone lives in the same building and it's this group of friends who are like family. They're their, you know, community. I, I love that kind of thing. That's, I would say, true for me. Friends like family have been a big deal for me. It's also got that coffee shop hub, too. Both both the movie and the TV show have a coffee shop hub. Oh, yeah. Love that <laughs> coffee shop. Yeah, we can talk, I could talk to you about that a little bit more mm-hmm. later, too, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so um, let's then talk about the cast and crew a little bit. So as we've said, uh, written and directed by Cameron Crowe. And for more information on Cameron Crowe, you can listen to every rom-com episode 25 um, on Jerry Maguire, where we've covered that in depth. So then we'll move on to one of the stars of the movie, Campbell Scott, who plays Steve. So prior to singles, Campbell Scott had done TV work, but he'd also done some movie roles, including supporting work in Longtime Companion and more prominent roles in The Sheltering Sky and Dying Young with Julia Roberts. Um, He continued to work steadily in the years after singles, including still today, but he's never really like broken out. I don't think as a lead actor, like, when you see him as the star of this movie yeah. and then Matt Dillon is like less of a star, it's kind of confusing in a way. Cause I think Matt Dillon's made his presence a little more known. Other notable work he's done since singles includes Roger Dodger playing Richard Parker in the amazing Spider-Man and its sequel, a role on house of cards. And then he's also done a lot of narrating work for documentary series. I saw. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that makes sense. He's got one of those voices. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And then most recently, he's completed filming a role in Jurassic World Dominion, which in, which seems to be uniting the old and the newer cast of the Jurassic Park series. Okay. So that'll be interesting. I would watch that just for the reunion. 
And then we have Kira Sedgwick. Yay, I love her. Um, She got her start on um, the soap opera Another World when she was 16. Um, And pre-singles, she had a number of TV appearances and lesser-known movies. And in 1989, appeared as Tom Cruise's teen love interest in Born on the Fourth of July. I remember that. And after singles, roles included Something to Talk About, yes, Phenomenon, yes, Personal Velocity, The Woodsman with her husband, Kevin Bacon, um, and the lead role in the TV series The Closer from 2005 to 2012, and a reoccurring role in Brooklyn Nine-Nine from 2014 to 2020. Yes, she's hilarious. Um, And (laughs) most recently, uh, she has the lead role in the TV show Call Your Mother of 2021. Uh, she also has nine directing credits, including a TV movie called Story of a Girl with Kevin Bacon in the lead role and a feature film in post-production called Space Oddity. And she has been married to Kevin Bacon since 1988 and they have two kids. Yeah. It always makes me happy when like Hollywood actors who seem like cool people get married and stay married. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm just, ha- you know, happy for a, for a happy, you know couple it just is that's yeah. nice yeah yeah because um, it can be such a tough industry for people to stay together i think so. yeah 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 but those two yeah they've been working actors for years and power to them that's just wonderful so then we move on to bridget fonda who plays janet and she is of course part of a famous hollywood family peter fonda is her father henry fonda is her grandfather and jane fonda is her aunt so that's a that's an acting pedigree right there yeah yeah And because of this, um, her first appearance in film was at age five, where she was an extra in the movie Easy Rider. But some other roles before singles include Shag from 1988, which we both really love. (laughs) (laughs) Supporting roles in The Godfather Part 3 and Doc Hollywood. And then the same year that Singles came out, one of her best known movies also came out, which is Single White Female, came out just a month before Singles. And then after singles, some of her roles included Bodies Rest in Motion, Point of No Return, Little Buddha, It Could Happen to You, The Road to Wellville, Jackie Brown, A Simple Plan, and Lake Placid. And her last IMDb role was playing the title role in the TV miniseries Snow Queen in 2002. And apparently she's retired from acting since then. Um, It may have to do with in 2003, she was in a car crash, which caused a fractured vertebra. And also in 2003, though, she married film composer Danny Elfman, I found out. Yeah. And they have a son together, Oliver. So they're also still together. That's great. And I guess, yeah, she's just got other things going on in her life. So I hope she's doing well. Danny Elfman. I didn't know that. And I'm like, Whoa! Yeah, yeah. Okay. So then there's Matt Dillon, who plays Cliff. Um, his first IMDb credit was called uh over the edge in 1979 and other prominent roles before singles are the outsiders yes rumblefish mm-hmm. the flamingo kid and drugstore cowboy um after the singles role um films included to die for beautiful girls in and out wild things something about mary crash that was huge and the tv show wayward pines Currently, uh, he has four projects in various stages of production, including a Wes Anderson film uh, called Asteroid City and a historical romance called An Ocean Apart. So there's a lot of other notable like actors and interesting cameos in this movie. 
So Sheila Kelly plays Debbie, the neighbor who goes on a video date. Jim True Frost plays Steve's friend Bailey. Bill Pullman shows up Yay. as a friendly plastic surgeon. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Giamatti is in one of his first film roles as what I call makeout guy because we just see him like yep. making out with his girlfriend. <laughs> yep. And he has one line. Um, when I saw him, I was so excited too. I was just like, it's Paul Giamatti. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, Jeremy Piven is a supermarket cashier. Eric Stoltz plays an angry mime. Um, Tim Burton plays the guy who directs the video dating tapes. Soundgarden's Chris Cornell shows up and listens to a car stereo that Cliff installs. And Cameron Crowe shows up in his own movie, playing a journalist who interviews the band Citizen Dick. So let's um let's then dig into like our let's dig into our general opinion of this movie. So I think you already mentioned that you probably didn't see it in theaters, and neither did I. I'm sure, like you, I rented it maybe on Martin's advice. Um, but what did you think of it when you when you saw it? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I love love stories, and I like there's you know a few going on. What about you? What do you think? This was not one of my favorites, to be honest. Okay. And um, I'm like I didn't dislike it. I thought there's clever bits in it. And there's like one of the things that's successful about the movie is there are stories in this movie, like little mini episodes that occur Mm -hmm. that I have always remembered. Mm. Sometimes you'll rewatch a movie and you'll kind of forget what happened in the movie. Right. Uh But like in this movie, like the the very first story where um, Linda meets Luis, the, you know, exchange student guy. Uh I was like, oh, yeah, I remember what happens here. Uh Like it it had been years and years since I'd seen this movie. But I just remembered how the whole thing played out and other bits that I remembered. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is what's going to happen here. Uh And so I think that's like memorable storytelling. And I think the dialogue like I like it better now. So I guess Mm. back when I first saw it, I wasn't a huge fan when I watched it like in the intermediate years, I was also kind of like, eh, it's all right. And when I watched it this time, I, I respected the craft a little more, I think. And I can recognize the aspects of the craft that I like. I think the main problem with me for this movie, the main problem I have with the movie is Campbell Scott kind of creeps me out. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was like testing this out too. Then I was watching other movies with him. I went and watched Dying Young, which I never saw before. He creeped me out even more in Dying Young. Okay. Why? What is it about him? <laughs> oh my God. We'll have to actually cover Dying Young sometimes to, to go into that. But it's like, okay. like, um, he, I don't know. There's just something about him that creeps me out. And like, I've watched him in a couple different roles. I watched Roger Dodger part of it. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, he's supposed to be creepy in this movie. So maybe it'll be okay. Uh-huh. Cause like, that's part of what he's trying to do. I'm like, nope, still creeps me out. Interesting. <laughs> and so that's one of your lead, you know, men, right? Yeah. And then Matt, Matt Dillon is playing such a doof that it's like hard <laughs> to get into him. I mean, I really like, and Kira Sedgwick's cool, yeah. like and everything, but like she doesn't have a ton to work with if mm. if I don't like Campbell Scott. And then Bridget Fonda, I love. Okay, she yeah. can do no wrong. Yeah, but like th- this time, I I wasn't really rooting for her to get together with Cliff, which we can get into later. Yeah, but yeah. Okay, interesting. So, so I want to know, like, what do you like? Do you like this movie more than most rom coms, or just like an average? Like, oh, it's pretty good. It does its job well. I think, um, just on average, you know, um, I don't own it. That's kind of a a test of how much I enjoy a film, or am willing because I have not rewatched it in years either. But I liked it. And, and you know, as I was watching it this time, I was like, oh, take note of all the funny, you know, 90s things that went on. And yeah, answering machines and uh, video dating. But I kind of 
forgot all about all that. And I just got into the stories and because, gosh, I was so, so young. Like, what's 15, 16? I looked at this movie and I thought these people were like in their 30s, but they're not. They're just like right out <laughs> yeah. of college or something. Um, well, actually, a few of them are almost 30. A, a little bit older. In the, in the actual. Yeah. Okay. But Bridget Fonda says she's like 23 and, and probably Cliff is supposed to be around the same. Yeah. But I think Steve and Linda are supposed to be like late 20s or early 30s okay. or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think like, yeah, one of the things I liked about the movie this time, too, is I lived in Seattle for like a very brief window of time. I lived in the Pacific Northwest for longer, but I lived in Seattle for like six months. And like this movie, like uh, just looking at the Seattle scenery just really brought me back Mm. to that. And like, I I think it captures a lot about the city and it's kind of the kind of beauty it has, you know, and also the the music and the time capsuleness of it all. I liked that. Yeah. Like, I love answering machines. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they, they ruled. Yeah. Yeah. I, I miss um, a regular telephone in a lot of ways. Just even, I think I've said it before, you know, the main phone would ring and then I could talk to my husband's friends who call um, my daughter. Now she can't call her friends because she doesn't have, a, do you know what I mean? Like, at this oh, age, weird, yeah. you know, third grade, I was calling my friends and oh, yeah. all that. So th- these yeah. children now, if they don't have their own cell phone, how do you? Well, you know, they, that is bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, you don't even you don't even really learn telephone etiquette yeah. that way, like because yeah. you have to answer the phone for your family, and that's like a big moment yes. in your life. Like this is how you probably yeah. answer the phone. Hello, so and so resident. Wow. You know, or when you call somebody, hello, you introduce yourself, and may I please speak to or so and so home, and yeah. you know, leaving a message and all that. Well, well, let's go more into that later when we talk about technology. But that is like wow, yeah, that's blowing my mind. Yeah, again. yeah, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's mind blowing. So. So I don't want to go too deeply into why singles is a Gen X film. I think it's actually pretty obvious in this case. And I'm going to, by the time you're listening to this, I will have put up a blog on our blog, which I haven't done in some time. I'm going to do a blog about what makes a Gen X rom-com. Okay. So excellent. We can, we can, we can get my opinion on these matters solidified somewhere. Anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's obvious you got the the grunge alternative music scene and you've got the like people kind of living a bohemian lifestyle. Not everybody in this movie is, but right. and then you've got in um, Linda and Steve have the environmental aspect of the 90s covered, which we'll talk about a little later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anything else you'd want to add to that? Like ge- the Gen Xness of this all or no, sounds good. All right. So let's then we'll get into the movie. So we open on the skyline of Seattle and some Seattle street scenes set to Waiting for Somebody by Paul Westerberg. Yeah, which we're not going to sing again. No, I'm not going to do it again. <laughs> Although it just popped into my head. And then we get into the opening vignette where Kira Sedgwick's character, Linda, talks in direct address to the camera like a documentary, which we also saw in She's Gotta Have It, which we previously discussed on the podcast. So another Gen X film that is using this kind of faux documentary conceit. I feel like that was very nineties. Like, I don't know, Sophia, do you think? Yeah, Yeah. I think you're right. I think you're right. And so then we get the um, opening story vignette and like, I like how this functions. Okay. So I'm going to say that this story, the opening story kind of contains the symbol of the garage door opener, which is going to be important for the rest of the movie. Yeah. 
Yeah. So Linda's talking about how for the first time in my life, I have my own place and like with my own garage door opener, my own parking space. And she uses her garage door opener to show herself opening the door. I don't know. I didn't research whether garage door openers were new at the time, Uh, but it seems kind of funny now to be all excited about this garage door opener. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It does. It really does. And she gets into this thing where she meets this guy um, while looking at puppies in a window and he's a foreign, he says he's a foreign exchange student from Spain, but he has to like leave in a week or something. Yeah. And they, they, they start hanging out together. And like, I think the night before he's supposed to go back to Spain, they sort of like sleep together. Yeah. At which point he gives her like this ring and says something about like, this shows my deep feelings yeah. and I will come back in two months. And like, and then, and then she gives him her garage, which I don't understand how this works. Does she have an extra garage door opener? <laughs> yeah. It's important she gives to him me. Her, yeah. She gives him her garage door opener and says, you'll always have a parking space. Yeah. Does he have a car? Like, I mean, he, yeah. <laughs> did he have a There's car? problems okay. with this. Yeah. <laughs> There's problems with this for sure. But then like the punchline to this whole thing is she's out dancing with her friend Ruth later. And while they're dancing, she sees Luis across the bar. He's already supposed to be back in Spain. And he basically acknowledges that, yes, it's him. They don't exchange any words, just looks. And she go. then you see her at the garage door opener store. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, and she's looking at an array of garage door openers. And she says, just give me the best one you have. I'll never lose it again. Mm. And yeah. And to me, it's like what Cameron Crowe has set up here is that the garage door opener is basically like the key to her heart or yep. her heart. Yep. Yeah. Which I didn't really see when I first watched the movie. Did, did you, was this obvious to everyone and I just like caught on now? I didn't really catch on to it before, but yeah, this like, yeah, it's like the key to the house basically, you know, and the key to her heart. This is, I'm not going to give it away again. So yeah, Linda, we meet first and let's see, what else can we say about Linda? She, well, she's also, yeah, she, she's an environmentalist. She works for some, you know, environmentalist agency and all that. Um, I don't know. I just think she's cool. She seems so grown up to me and like has her stuff together. Yeah. She still seems grown up to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, I'm like I got to get to where Linda is yeah. in life. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Then we meet Steve and we see also another direct address to the camera from Steve Campbell Scott's character. And he is working for the department of transportation. His obsession is getting super train off the ground, which we can talk more about later. And yeah, he's, he tells a little vignette too, which I don't think is important enough to go into unless you want to no, tell about same, it. Same. I guess yeah. it's just to say that he's had a few relationships that are, you know, he thought were serious, but as he talks about them, they were like not serious. And, and he has so a little bit of his backstory. So these two are going to about to intersect. So they're both on their way to see, I believe this is the one where Allison Chains is performing. They're both on their way to a warehouse to see a show with their friends. So we're going to play a clip of their meeting. This is after Steve has glanced Linda across a crowded club and made his way over to her. argument here it is 
says that when you come to a place like this, you, you can't just be yourself, you have to have an act. So anyway, I, I saw you standing there, so I thought, A, I, I could just leave you alone, B, I could come up with an act, or C, I could just be myself. I chose C. What do you think? I think that A, you have an act. Uh -huh. And that B, not having an act is your act. Thank you. <laughs> Man, that's rough. <laughs> To be fair, Campbell Scott is creepy. So I don't think he's thing. creepy. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. You're funny. Oh, my God. That, I mean, yeah. Can how can you fully enjoy film a story if you think the dude is creepy? Like, yeah, that's tough it's, to... It's, it may, yeah, it makes it hard. It does make it Like, appar apparently Johnny Depp was an original choice to play this character. I don't think that would have worked either, but no. he turned it down. That's yeah. funny. But, um, yeah, like... What do you think about this this meeting scene? Um, like, whose side are you? Are you with Linda? Would you turn him down? Are you with Steve? You're trying to you're giving it your best shot. I or does I, not I appreciate his shot, um, but I probably would have turned him down too and been like, yeah, I think that's your act. Bye bye. Um, just because that's <laughs> that's me anyway. I mean, <laughs> I'm like, who are you? I don't trust you. Are you, are you are careful? You you're out? careful with your garage door open? Yes, yeah. very careful with my garage. <laughs> and yet, like, you know, we'll talk about, uh, what's her name? Janet. And yeah. later on and how I identify with her too. But how about, yeah. what about you? Would you have continued talking like, to him if you didn't think he was creepy, I guess? I would have talked, I would have talked to his friend. So he, he has a friend in this <laughs> um, scene. Incidentally, his friend's goal is to get 20 numbers stored in his watch, yep. which is like this amazing new watch that can store 20 numbers in it. Yep. It's got it's a mini a miniature little keypad uh for, on the watch. Yeah. Hilarious. I mean, that is not the aspect of that friend I would go for, but he just has this like kind of open, guileless face that mm. I think I would have been attracted to at that age. So mm. yeah. <laughs> and and he has like a jaunty hat. So but yeah, like I don't know. What's funny about the scene to me now is that like, this is such, I don't know if people are approaching each other in a, in a, well, actually we're about to look at statistics and it's not as rare as I think, but, um, but the noise level would be really hard in that instance. I think I, I like there's it. no way you would hear each other. Right. No, I hate like, it. I don't like loud bar bars, pub, whatever. They're so damn loud. And how can you talk to anybody? <laughs> like if I'm just there to hear the music, fine, right? Right. But like, yeah, trying to hit on someone seems like it would be really difficult. Anyway, Steve gets shot down in the moment, but then later they run into each other, um, both outside the club. She rejects him again. And then in a newsstand where finally, because it three times this has happened, right. it seems sort of like fate, I guess. Yeah. Uh, she starts talking to him. So they do start talking and start the process. Yeah. So I wanted to like, sort of think about how did we used to meet people versus how we meet people today? Cause I was talking with um, Serena and she's got to have it. And she was thinking it was really odd that one of the characters like met Nola, the main character on the sidewalk, just like he thought she looked cute. She, he came up to her, started talking to her, but I wanted to like get some actual statistics to find out like how people are meeting. So this is from Stanford university. Um, it's comparing how heterosexual couples met in 1995 versus 2017. They didn't have um, data on other types of couples. 
So one big difference is that in 1995, only 2% of people met their partner online, which is hardly surprising because right. the internet was like almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. And by 2017, the number was 39%. And I actually would have thought it would be higher. Yeah. Same. I mean, it probably is higher by 2022, but yeah. Yeah. The number, but this is, this surprised me. The number of people who met in a bar or restaurant also rose. It was 19% in 1995 and now it's 27%. So maybe this meeting in this like public space thing isn't that odd. You know, it makes sense. If you're still going out, you know, why, why not? Because I feel like it, you know, the online dating, it, I think it took a while to catch on. Like people, I think the, the, the reputation it had was like, ooh, if you have to resort to that, <laughs> um, you know, as as even in the film, like, uh, what's her name? The character who uses this, Debbie. Debbie. She's like, I'm going to use that video dating app you, gift you guys got me. And they're like, that was a joke. And she's like, well, I'm going to, do you know what I mean? And even online dating, yeah. people, people kind of kept that quiet. They're like, yeah, we met online, you know? And, and even though it's like, I don't know, more accepted, totally fine. There's a gazillion dating apps now. I think there's also a thing where people still want to meet in person, you know, and some people, I think it's becoming way more acceptable though, to have met online. Absolutely. But I think there's also a thing where people are, you know, even Facebook, Twitter, Insta, you know, people take breaks from those things, those social medias, because they long for, in-person, face-to-face conversation. So there's yeah. pros and cons would, is all there is it to would be it. Interesting. It would be interesting to see how the pandemic affected this too, like Ugh. once they get around to doing more statistics yes, on that. Yes, 100%. So. Yeah. Another big difference though between 95 and 2017, so couples who met through family, friends, at work, or at school all plummeted. Like I don't have the exact numbers here. You can look in our show notes for that. But like that, I mean, I guess it's not shocking, but for me, like basically I was trying to think of all my relationships. Right. And like, it was like, let's see, work, uh, friends. Um, then it was like, there was a school in there. No, there's a couple schools. Like there was like one person that I kind of like, there was one person that I met kind of like just out in the world. And that was my first husband, Josiah. I saw him. This is really weird. I saw him working at a grocery store yes. and I just felt randomly drawn to him. Yeah. It was really strange. So my brother went up and started talking to him. They both found out they were into meditation and we became friends. Yeah. So, so I picked him up at a grocery store. I guess. Yep. yep. I remember. <laughs> and yeah. then um, my Second husband I met online on Live Journal, but without without the intention of dating at that time. We were just friends. Uh-huh. So yeah, but everyone else, like everyone else I've dated or you know been involved with, really has been like school, work, like friends, basically. Yeah. How about you? Think- Did you like oh. when you met people? Was it like <laughs> I didn't similar, date, remember? Like- <laughs> but yeah, but but like yeah. You went you went on dates though. You said a few dates. Oh, like a like what was the primary means of running into these people? Right. Like I'd hope to meet people in right, my social circles. Gimini church was like practically you know, it's kind of covert <laughs> like singles matchups. Like everyone's trying to get yeah. you married up in the church. So it's like, ooh, I could set you up with this person and, you know, get married, get married. So um what a way to go on a first date, right? Um, but I, I was very much like wanting kind of a meet in real life versus like an online thing. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I did go on some online dates, actually, when I was in college, like right at the beginning of online dating, Whoa. like we had a five college ma- meetup thing or something <laughs> where you could make dates. But like they, they just mostly like fizzled because like there's a difference between online chemistry and in-person chemistry. Yeah. And I don't think people realize like how much of probably this stuff ends up being like biological on some level, Mm. you know, like maybe compatible pheromones or some shit. I don't know, but there's definitely something to it that like, it's one thing to meet somebody like online virtually and talk about all this stuff. And another thing when you get right in the room anyway, so where are we at? We're at Janet and Cliff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So as to meeting people, we don't ever see how our next characters met, but Janet and Cliff are our other potential couple. So let's see. Let's tell tell a little bit about Janet. Oh, Sophia she Wonder. she also addresses the camera straight away, and she's you know I'm 23, and she's working at a coffee shop, and I'm confused. She talks about saving for school, but then later on she talks about paying off her loan. So was that undergrad? I guess I don't know. I think maybe she was like maybe she started going to school and then she quit okay. and she had to save to pay off her loans. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, something yeah. that happens. Okay. Yeah, and she um is into Cliff, the lead singer of Citizen Dick. <laughs> with their with their hit single, Touch Me, I'm Dick. Uh, not, not really not really their hit single, but that's one of their songs. Yeah. Um, but they're big in Belgium, right? That's part of the thing. <laughs> oh man. Um yeah, and Cliff is introduced as, you know, he's in this actually, you know who he doesn't direct directly speak to the camera, I feel like till later. It's Steve who talks about cliff that he's in this band but he he also delivers flowers and he's got like 23 jobs on the side to support his music and his his band yeah yeah and like um cameron crow was talking about that like how like a lot of people in la like they just had their partner supporting them while they worked on their music but he was impressed that in seattle there was this whole okay. culture of people holding down a day job and then spending their nights working on their music or whatever and, like, okay he, he just thought that was really cool yeah i think that's also just very gen x bohemian slacker culture like having all these different balls in the air when i lived <laughs> in portland it was the same thing like in portland there was this I think it was Chuck Palahniuk who said that everybody in Portland is a hyphenate. Like you have to be a this, 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 this. So I was a nanny bicyclist, English major, vegan or something. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and you might have a friend who was like a, a let's see, like a welder, knitter, like a, a burlesque dancer. So you know uh-huh. what I mean? Like everybody would have a few things going on. So I like that. I, I, I get that. I feel like that's kind of a artist life, you know? Um, my gosh, all of our years in New York, if you were trying to do some, something artistic, you had your temp gig, you know, and we're temping so yeah. that you could pay rent and work on your art at night. We did that for a long time. So these two are very yeah. deeply Gen X, deeply Gen X characters. Yeah. And- yeah, and Janet's not into the arts herself, although she does want to go to architecture school, but she is definitely an, a music appreciator, yeah. or at least a musician appreciator. Yeah. She is, like, way too into Cliff, who is showing her way too little interest. Yep. Yeah, we've got a clip of this, so... um Let's let's hear the let's hear our clip of Cliff and Janet's relationship at the beginning of this movie in a nutshell. Janet, what's your deal? Well, your machine wasn't on, and um, I was supposed to see you Saturday, but right. I don't. Right. So I just thought I'd come by and say hi. <laughs> hi. Hey. So, um, 
How about this weekend? Oh, this weekend we're really busy. We got we got that show, right? Yeah, we got that show. We got these guys are coming up from LA. It's great. It's gonna be really rocking. Like Cliff. Great. Well, so um, come over after. Deal. Look, Janet. You know I see other people still, right? You do know that, don't you? You don't fool me. Janet, I cannot be fooling you less. Hey, Cliff, you gotta move your truck, man. Cliff, I know what you're thinking. We made the connection, and when you make the connection, it's like chemistry takes care of itself. I mean, it makes its own decisions, you know? So you gotta just sit back and enjoy it, because you know when it's real, and this is real, and... We just don't even have to discuss it. Janet, you're spazzing off on me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. He's such a doofus. He is such a doofus. But, you know, I loved it this time. I thought he was such a perfectly self-absorbed, I'm this great musician, and, like, oh, I love In the beginning, and I feel like, later on he he's humbled a little bit but um oh man yeah he, he is so funny it is such a good comic role for matt dylan yeah 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 for sure he plays it plays it well uh, see okay so i feel a lot like janet where man i had crushes on dudes that were maybe bad boyish and like i'm just thinking of one from the movie theater when we worked there and he'd be like oh John, oh come on you didn't know bob it's such a thing for bob you had a thing for bob okay no bob. i didn't know and he'd be like yeah, no. I- i'm gonna go have a smoke want to come with me and i'd be like sure and i would just like sit outside while he smoked like what the fuck like <laughs> uh yeah i've been there, been there i've been there right that's totally yeah. me like totally did that i would have loved to hang out with the band and like anyhow yeah yes no my my main memory of bob from the movie theater is him sitting like in the booth like crouched down so you couldn't see him from outside but you could hear him outside the booth like where the Uh customers would walk by yeah and he was just going on the microphone he was going you are an asshole you are (laughs) an asshole you are an asshole (laughs) a couple people walked by and they were just like what what is this oh the shenanigans man that was such oh, a fun we had job so many shenanigans. oh yeah yeah that was a great place but anyway work. yeah I, I understand exactly what you're talking about though I, I the only character in this movie actually that I really identify much with is Janet and it's because uh-huh. I seriously remember being young and being like so in love with somebody that you couldn't accept mm. that like they weren't as into you as you are into them and hell even as an older person i still like have that problem sometimes just of like pining for things yeah. that like aren't giving that back to you yeah. you know what i mean totally like i don't know what it is in people that we do this either and it's both sexes do this men and women do this where they're like trying to get somebody unattainable hard to get <laughs> or just like who's pushing you off a little bit and it's like i don't i, I is it that we just have to accept that we're good enough at a certain point? And like, I don't know. I We could do a whole show just on this, this conundrum, but I think I've gotten better at like trying to be around people who show me similar interest in return, you know, as opposed to like longing for people who are aloof in this way. And like, maybe not even as cool as we think they are on the surface. 100%. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. <laughs> oh, Janet and Cliff. Yeah. yeah. So anything more you want to say about their situation right now before we talk about the auxiliary characters? No. 
Okay, so we've got some auxiliary characters. We don't see much of them, but like both um, Steve and Linda get their best friend that they talk to. Yeah. Steve's got Bailey, the guy with 20 numbers in his watch, um, who also has this really strange scene where he goes to a club where everyone speaks French, which is a deleted scene that you can see oh, um, uh, in, the, in the DVD. It's pretty funny. It makes his character a little more interesting. And then Ruth is Linda's friend, and she's just kind of this nice, supportive lady, yeah. like kind of no-nonsense girl. I like her mm-hmm. from what I can see of her. And then we have Debbie, who has red hair, lives in the same apartment complex, and she later goes on our video date. Um, okay. Let's talk about the red hair. That is from a bottle. It is bright, like <laughs> fake red hair, and she's kind of like, she's goofy. She's a kooky character. Um, she, I think she's rocking it, though. I like her red hair. Oh, and I like it, too, but I just feel like she is kooky. All right. All that's right. Part of her, we get we, her charm, I suppose. <laughs> so let's another sort of unofficial character in this movie would be Seattle in the 90s. So let's talk a little bit about this. First of all, we've got the backdrop of the grunge music that eventually helped this movie get released. Yeah. So just a little background on where we were historically. Um, Nirvana's Nevermind is kind of considered like the I guess I would say the turning point in the alternative music scene, the grunge scene. It was released September 24th, 1991, and it reached number one on the Billboard charts in January of 1992, the year that singles came out. Um, This is a quote from KQED. 1992 was the pinnacle of grunge changing the rules about what popular culture could be. That year's album releases included a mind-bending number of alt classics, including Nirvana's Incesticide, Sonic Youth's Dirty, Stone Temple Pilots' Core, Sugar's Copper Blue, Mudhoney's Piece of Cake, Soul Asylum's Grave Dancers Union, Faith No More's Angel Dust, Screaming Tree's Sweet Oblivion, and Sap by Alice in Chains. There are simply too many others from that year to even list here. So Cameron Crowe lucked out. Like <laughs> he, he released one of the only um, genre movies that is about you know, feature films that is set in the world of grunge music with people from the grunge mm-hmm. music scene mm-hmm. in the year that it hit. Yeah. I mean, that's luck. Interesting. That's, Cause didn't it? he start writing this like in the eighties, like that, yeah. he, this idea of, I don't, I think people looking for love or something like that, but kind of sat on yeah. it. And then he caught it right here in, you yeah. know, 91, 92. He's like, Oh, that idea with this music and this scene and this culture, like it all fit together. And, um, yeah, and it, it, it fits him, too, because he started as a music yeah. journalist, so this was in his blood anyway. I just want to say, I really enjoy that um, kind of artistically, like from Cameron Crowe's perspective, and just as a writer and as a person with like creative ideas that like you can have an idea um, one year, and maybe it's not fully formed, but like, you know, sometimes holding on to it or sitting on it, and then years go by, and then you know, it fits now, 10 years later, and you finish that piece or whatever. I just think that as part of like an artistic process is very cool. And, um, you know, trust the process. And, you know, sometimes those ideas come to fruition later on. And if you're a writer yeah. out there, a creative person, songwriters, whatever, um, artist of, of any kind, don't throw those things away. Keep them tucked away. You never know when they're going to come back around and, you know, be fully formed. My two cents. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, so the the music was hitting big, and in the movie itself, um, like we said before, there are live performances. So Allison Chains, when Linda and Steve first meet in the scene we played already, they performed "It Ain't Like That" and "Wood," and both of the performances were live. They were not to a backing track, so this was like all the extras were getting to hear this concert essentially. Yeah, pretty cool, and um, yeah. And then Soundgarden later plays in the movie that plays Birth Ritual when Steve is at a concert by himself. And I I didn't check if they played live too, but I think they may have as well. And then we already mentioned Cliff's band members were all played by Pearl Jam members. And Pearl Jam had released their first album, 10, in 1991. That included songs including Alive, Evenflow, and Jeremy. And all of those titles, like even though I wasn't a huge Pearl Jam fan, I can start singing them in my head if I just hear the title. Yeah. Another interesting thing that came out of this movie. So Soundgarden had a song called Spoon Man. So they made for Cliff. They had a scene where Cliff was like busking by himself with a tape of his music, like with different songs. It was cut out in the movie eventually, but like it had a whole track listing and Spoon Man was one of the tracks on that. So Jeff Ament of Pearl Jam had made up all the song titles for the, the songs on this tape. And he based this title Spoon Man off of the Seattle street performer called Artist of Spoon Man. Then in turn, Chris Cornell, who also appears in the film from Soundgarden, decided that Spoonman was such a cool title, he wanted to make a song based on it. And so that's, you know, if you remember Spoonman, like, do you remember that song from the film? I can't really know. It's not in the film. Oh, it's later. He just, made it. Oh, no, I don't. Yeah. No, that's funny. Oh, it has a whole video and everything. I can't sing any more than Spoonman. <laughs> I think that's dun, dun. just rad. And how much fun but, is that? Yeah. And then eventually the guy, the street performer, artist, the spoon man that the title came for, like appeared with Soundgarden, I believe, in a video or at least in live performances. So it all kind of came around the Seattle circle. Fantastic. I love that. (laughs) And as we talked, yeah. And as we talked about, the single soundtrack was like super successful. It also had music from uh, Smashing Pumpkins and Mudhoney, Jimi Hendrix and others. So like also in the movie, we have the Seattle grunge fashion and Seattle lifestyles. So, yeah, first of all, Janet's fashion. Oh, my God. Yeah, I love it. Perfect. <laughs> Do you have any favorite Janet fashion touches? or uh, The one that you uh, mentioned here, the vintage dress with the black tights and the Doc Martens. Um, I love that. Yeah, her cute hats. Hello. What about you? Yeah. Yeah, like when you talk about the black tights. So what I love about her vintage dress black tight combo is that at one point in the movie, you see her sunbathing on a roof and she's wearing black tights. And I'm like, that is so Pacific Northwest. That is so Seattle. Like, you will see people in the Pacific Northwest sometimes like on just really bright, sunny days, like still dressing like it's the fall. And it's like, it's very odd. I mean, I think less with climate change now, but like... (laughs) Like, seriously, Funny. that's something I observed there. And of course, we've got the flannel shirts, like yep. she's wearing them, Cliff's wearing them. I think maybe Linda and Steve wear them too, but I don't, not in a noticeable way. Mm-hmm. They're more in the like Pacific Northwest, like a uh, sporty clothing, sporty outdoors wear clothing out- yeah. outfits. Yeah. And like, and Linda's got the long floral dresses of the 90s. Yes. Love it. Yes. <laughs> And then Cliff's outfits, most of his wardrobe actually belonged to the Pearl Jam bassist Jeff Ament. So he's wearing Pearl Jam musician clothing. That's like awesome. These cut-off sweatshirts, like um, like sweatshirts that have been cut off into tank tops, like long johns under pants and shorts. Uh-huh. And then he's got that that um long grunge hair with the like sort of creative goatee. Uh-huh. 
Uh, <laughs> so fantastic. So perfect. And just <laughs> grungy. So gross. Like, wash that damn hair, man. Like, what? Oh, really? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I actually find that attractive. I didn't think he looked that dirty. Like, I thought he was pretty well kept for, for all things considered. I no, think not that, your thing, huh? I think Cliff was. But if you look at, like, the the Pearl Jam actual guys, they were pretty, oh, they were pretty yeah. grungy. I, I dated so. a I dated a couple long haired dudes in the in the nineties. Oh. They weren't specifically grunge dudes, but like they were more martial arts dudes actually, oh, or gamer okay. dudes. That's a little different. I had a couple long haired boyfriends. <laughs> Funny. Oh, uh, I think I was into it in the nineties. Yeah. <laughs> so then we have Janet working at a coffee shop, which coffee in Seattle go hand in hand, and coffee really exploded in the nineties. And you yourself yeah. were participating in this coffee culture. Can yes. you tell us a little bit about? your coffee le- shop life oh man what 90? a lucky girl i was uh you know it was uh called kyle's top of the bean coffee bar there in lake geneva and it was a place you know we frequented and i had a dream that um kyle offered me a job and i told him he was like do you want to work here i'm like yes so i was um a senior i guess 17 and i got to work at the super cute coffee shop and i worked at the movie theater over the summer too i had two awesome yeah. jobs but the coffee shop job was so much fun man i just i talked to so many fun people i still love a coffee shop job and in fact living in brooklyn for 13 years the church that i was with um had a coffee shop and we all volunteered there and i worked there for so many years even up until i was like i don't know 7 months pregnant still working and I loved it. I really did. We, there were people, neighbors that, you know, came in and, you know, we got to see their babies be born and now their babies are all grown up and just so great. And when were you, when you were doing the coffee shop job in the nineties, like I know we lived in Lake Geneva, but did you see any like artsy type people come in? Did you feel like you were part of that kind of community? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, like it was small at the time, but yes, everybody loved it. I think that was such a And what kind of music were you playing? I was probably shop? playing ABBA and Sarah McLaughlin and then my coworker would <laughs> okay. come in and play Bob Marley. I can't listen to that Bob Marley anymore. But then there was oh, there was a mailman. Forgot his name. But he was a music music aficionado and he would make these killer mixtapes and he had like this whole Nina Simone. I love that's where I learned Nina Simone too was in the 90s nice. and love her. And like oldies and just like cool stuff. So the five disc CD changer and like the two <laughs> tape deck thing. That was fun. Nice. Yeah. That's, that's not, that's very nineties. You put a mixtape in there. Yeah. Yep. And we were both working at the movie theater, which was another very nineties uh, job. I feel like, yes. yeah. Well, back when movie theaters weren't so corporate and you could do really weird stuff all day. So. <laughs> We also worked. We were good workers. We were good yeah. workers, but man, it was just a bunch of kids. <laughs> Fun times. Incl- including the managers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so let's see. So we got that 90s uh, alt- Gen X lifestyle stuff going on in this movie. And then Friends is Chosen Family, which we talked about. Yeah. There's that really nice scene you're talking about where Steve is describing who lives in the building and he's telling Linda all about everybody's personalities and what they do. And then Linda's like, you talk about them the way I talk about my family. Yeah. I value that so much. Like I love my family, but as far as like feeling understood and people who got me or whatever, really found that in my friendship circles. So So that movie, the movie resonates with you then on that level. Yeah. Any kind of movie that has that 
chosen family, friends like family mm-hmm. theme. I'm like, yep, I get it. I get it. So despite having all these awesome friends, though, they're still trying to find love, our characters. And Steve eventually convinces Linda to let him have water with her. Yep. (laughs) Which is kind of funny. He's like, you want to have dinner? And she's like, no, I'm busy. You want to have lunch? You only hear his side of the conversation. Uh, Coffee, and then finally it's water. It comes down to water. This is how much Steve wants to hang out with Linda. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And they end up going out to have like a lunch together in the end anyway. Um, And Steve and Linda, I think, like, for me, they represent not the grunge lifestyle, but they represent the environmental lifestyle. Like, as we mentioned, Steve has his super train. Linda works with the Seattle Environmental Council. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we find out she's trying to do is monitor and clean the ocean from the oil spills. And she references the Exxon Valdez oil spill from 1989, which at the time was a very big deal. Like, I remember hearing about Exxon Valdez a lot when I was a kid. Okay. And after they have this little lunch together... Linda gets into Steve's car. He is going to give her a ride back to work. And she reaches over to the driver's side and she unlocks his door. And this like really impresses Steve. Like, oh, yeah. she's special. Like yeah. she was thoughtful. And yeah. like, and I thought that was so funny because that seems like a standard thing to me. But like for him, this is like a big deal. Yeah. And, and like we find out later in the movie, the Janet's thing is she wants somebody who will say bless you or gesundheit when she sneezes. Yeah. So people having these little things. Do you have any little things like about a person when you're first meeting them, like as a potential partner that show you that this would be a good partner? You know, this would be, I think that's really funny because like, I probably learned that from films, from stories of like, it must be a sign. He, he opened the door for me or whatever. And like kind of clinging to those as indicators of good people or something like that. And um, actually feeling like that's just, that's bullshit. Like, (laughs) Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I don't know. So do you have do you have any deal breakers, though? Like things if somebody didn't do it, you would be like, forget that person? Um, Kali, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it'd have to be pretty Like what big. if somebody never said bless you when you sneezed? Like would that bot would like you notice that? Would it bother you? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't <laughs> okay, think Greg well, says it now. Though. I don't think he says bless. No. I don't. Maybe Gesundheit. Maybe (laughs) Gesundheit. And I don't like Gesundheit. But like. Yeah. yeah. When we. When Greg and I first got together. It was really funny. One of my friends was like. He doesn't light up when you walk in the room. Which is really hilarious. Because Greg doesn't light up. He's not a light up person. Like. (laughs) And I was like. uh, I kind of thought that was a really ridiculous thing to say. Because I'm like. Hmm. I don't know my affection for him and knowing his affection for me did not hinge on me, you know, him lighting up when I walked in a room when Greg is elated, I can tell only because I've known him for so long. Yeah. <laughs> like his face doesn't change a whole lot. So, so for you, anyway. it's like these, these little signs might like end up sort of camouflaging bad behavior and also getting in the way of like understanding somebody who might not show them. Maybe. I don't know. I just feel like it was, that was like kind of naive young girl, Sophia thinking. Okay. Well, actually I I agree that there are signs for me. Like for me, for me, it's like, um, if somebody is nice to animals, Uh, like that matters to me. Like if somebody is nice to animals, that's an indication to me that they are going to be nice to people, at least on some level. And, And the inverse also, if somebody is not nice to animals, that's something that's a red flag for me. For sure. Yeah. Um, and same thing goes for like servers and cashiers. If somebody is rude or unfair, 
to servers or cashiers, it's like kind of a deal breaker for me. Mm. It's not always like a sure sign if they're nice that they're a good person, but like right. it definitely helps. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And if people are talk really bitterly about their exes, I worry. Although I did have one boyfriend who like did talk pretty bitterly about his ex and I guess we did end up breaking up and we don't talk anymore. There you go. <laughs> but but we had a good time. Like we had a good relationship while it lasted. And I would talk to him still, like if he was open to it. But like, yeah, it's like we won't open that wound again. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> no, it's okay. So like yeah, I don't think it's like these things are always like set in stone, but I do think that they're little indicators. But the door thing to me, that just seems like common courtesy. Like right. And and yeah, bless you. Bless you would matter to me. I'm glad that it's not a big deal for you. But for me, it would be like, what what's going on here? I sneeze. <laughs> I'll bless myself just like for double insurance. But I like <sighs> getting blessed. Aww. Even though I'm not even religious. And I certainly don't believe that like demons are entering into my nose. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So we follow Steve and Linda. Um, they're at Steve's place now. I really remember this part of dating, like the part where somebody would come over to your dorm room or your space and like see all your stuff. Yeah. And and I like how Cameron Crowe lingers on that, like where Linda's looking at his yes. pictures on the wall, his record albums. Yeah. 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 Do you, do you remember this too? I, I still like that. Uh, people come over and we're like, come look at everything. Look at all of our, you know, books and DVDs yeah. and stuff on the walls. Like, and I like going to other people's homes and doing that. I'm like, oh, tell me about this piece and where did that come from? And so I, I still am on that train. And one thing that um, Linda notices right away is he has this uh, picture, which is called Le Baiser de l'Hôtel de Ville, which is which means the kiss by the Hotel de Ville. And it's by the photographer Robert Joanneau from 1950. It's a really famous image you might have seen. It's basically this guy has a woman in his arms and he's kind of her head's kind of thrown back and they're kissing yeah. and while strangers kind of walk by a black and white photo. Yeah. Anyway, like Steve mentioned this postcard earlier in the film in his introduction, like why can't it be as simple as this? Right. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to like learn some background on this photo. And what I found out is that this was actually a staged photo. <laughs> so Joanneau had used actors in these poses, he was commissioned to do a photo spread for life magazine on the topic of the lovers of Paris, but there were laws against like straight taking strangers photos without their permission. Okay. So what he did was he had actors like walk around Paris and he just caught them in different, you know, loving positions. Okay. And this is, this still though remains like a famous image of kind of like spontaneous love. Yeah. And isn't that funny? Yeah. And kind of ironic. Uh-huh. <laughs> Very much. Anyway, you can see more details about that in the show notes if you're interested. But um, yeah, so they bond over this image, though, that they both have, like this thing in common that they both have. They also bond when they're listening to records. I guess Steve used to be a DJ. And they almost kiss when they're listening to Jimi Hendrix's Waterfalls. But then Linda just kind of like pulls back at the last minute. Her garage door opener is still not going to be given away. Oh, yeah. And Linda leaves Steve's house, but Steve then ends up following her back to her apartment. He knocks on her door and he says, I was just nowhere near your neighborhood. Now, maybe if I wasn't creeped out by Campbell Scott, Uh this would have been charming to me. Mm -hmm. But I was like, creepy. He looks sort of like Ted Bundy. This is Seattle. And he's coming and showing up at your house late at night when you already left. Ah, I think it's lovely. See, I love it. And then she does too. She leans in and kisses him and... Brings him inside. Yep. 
And they start having sex. And of course, um, while they start having sex, Linda's ex Andy calls and it goes straight to her machine. And you hear the when like, so youths, this is what it used to be like. You would hear somebody's like call that you're missing, come over your answering machine. And so you would have the opportunity to pick up the call. But this could also lead to awkward situations where people would overhear your private calls, Uh your private messages. (laughs) <laughs> Which is what happens here because Andy's like, it's it's obvious that Linda has called her ex-boyfriend, Andy, who she's still friends with and talked about Steve to him. And so now mm-hmm. Andy's like, well, he sounds like this and maybe you should go for it and blah, blah, blah. And so what does she do? She throws something. No, and- no. She turns on the TV. She turns on the TV. That's it. And it's playing like My Three Sons, which is like the least sexy thing it could be playing. <laughs> yes. Really. But to cover up Andy rambling on and on. Yep. That's funny. <laughs> I don't think I ever had an awkward answering machine incident, but I think definitely my mom or like my parents or somebody like in my family had called while I was having sex in college at some point. I'm sure of it. <laughs> I, re- I remember that. And like, we just would let it play basically because what else, we did, I didn't have a TV to awkwardly put my three sons on. <laughs> That's funny. That's very funny. Any awkward answering machine incidents in your past or? No, no, no. I had, we had like voicemail service in college. Oh, So it just okay. went to there. Nobody heard anybody's messages. And um, fancy. You I did, know. did you have one in high school? High school? There did must have, have been a family answering machine. Oh, see, I had my own machine in high school. Oh, no. I was on the phone so much with Jenny Wozniak. They gave me my own landline. Wow. No, sir. <laughs> No, ours was like the one landline. I think we had call waiting uh, and our house was so small. Like you could just pull the cord into your room or whatever. Yeah. And then it went cordless and all those big, exciting things. Ooh, cordless phone. (laughs) (laughs) And you pulled up the antenna and pushed it back. Yeah. We never, we never went that way. I don't think, I think we, I think we had in my house in Lake Geneva, there may even still be a landline there with a cord on it. Oh, but um, my folks yeah, got rid of Yeah, I think we theirs. went straight from that to like cell phones. I don't think we ever had an interim period. So, Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. All right. So anyway, we don't want to get too bogged down in this. Okay. So, so they have sex. Linda and Steve have sex. And then we get the aftermath of sex where like Steve needs to make the all important decision of like, what should he do next? And we see him, we see him in the coffee shop surrounded by his friends, getting advice. Yeah. This guy plays no games. That's great. Yeah. And I've got to play this one perfectly. Just go with it, Steve. What do your instincts tell you to do? Not to listen to you guys. There you go. I'm telling you, she doesn't want you tugging at her bra strap. She wants mystery. She wants drama. She wants excitement. I know women. I don't want drama. I don't want excitement. I just, I want to trust him. Should I trust him? Yeah. Not all guys are like Louise. You're right. You're right. Steve is different. Steve, you just follow your instincts. I mean, don't treat this like casual sex. Casual sex doesn't even exist anymore. It's lethal, it's over. What are you thinking? If I had a personal conversation with God, I would ask him to create this girl. My chest hurts. Uh-oh. You didn't do anything like leave a note, did you? No, I left my blue t-shirt by mistake. There oh, are no, no. no. What? What? 
What is that? What does that mean? Janet, give me the phone. <clears throat> I am going to call my new semi-girlfriend. You don't realize you're gonna scare her off. She's beautiful. Anyone would call her. You distinguish yourself by not calling her. Yep. P.S. That's how you get her. No, no, no. Bailey, you don't understand. Am I the only one that remembers your last three girlfriends? Uh, you're right. I gotta let this one breathe. <laughs> Very funny. Uh, it should be noted that after Janet says casual sex is dead and it's lethal, uh, Cliff makes kind of a face and then slides out of the booth and walks out of the cafe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> funny yeah that it's interesting because like by the time i got to college people were like uh they were okay with casual sex again it's weird like there's this whole thing where like she says i thought like where linda when she's going to college said i thought i was going to be part of the sexual revolution and then she goes to college and the reason she's not part of the sexual revolution is because there's a come as your favorite contraceptive party where everyone's dressed up in costumes like condoms and diaphragms and stuff Uh but i'm like to me, it's like, how is like having people dressed as contraceptives, you know, yeah. against having sex? You can still have sex, but yeah. they were having safe sex. Yeah. I don't know. It's a weird, it's a weird time period in America. Yeah. Um, obviously, AIDS was very scary and very serious and like did terrible damage, especially in the gay community. And like, you know, was something that everyone had to like contend with. But like, I don't think that like really i think like maybe some attitudes towards casual sex slowed down but i think more people just started getting wise about like we have to be safe about this yeah that makes sense i don't know anyway so for you like listening to this um i never really thought about the game playing aspect of dating except when i was watching movies like this right and i was never good at playing games i was totally more of like a go for it kind of person just call when i feel like it um like, do you relate to this idea of like, you need to play a game or did you ex- experience people doing that to you? It, or This is what's probably played into my like avoidance of dating. I'm like, geez, that sounds like so complicated. And I like, didn't like any of that. It's put me off, you know? So yeah, <laughs> the remedy was just not to date. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I think I knew that all that was bullshit and I would just want to be like Linda, be like, no games, just want to trust you. So yeah, that's me. You, how'd it go for you? Well, for me, like I wouldn't have ever been in Linda's position because I would have just called the guy. Right. <laughs> I would have Good been like, for you. He's going to wait four days to call. Well, whatever. I'll just call him the next day if I feel like calling him. Uh-huh. I don't know, which probably made me a Janet a little bit. Although we see Janet at one point also sort of like trying to resist being the one to call where Cliff is running late for her. And she's like, uh, like if I, if he doesn't come and like this call in this many minutes, um, I'll call him. Or if I make this basket, I'll call him or two out of three. If I make these baskets, I'll call him. And I'm just like, you know, either call or don't call, you know? Yeah. But, but, but I do, I do relate though to like, sometimes when I was more of in the Janet mode, I would kind of sit by the phone a little bit and kind of wait. And this is another thing people today would not understand at all. But like you'd had to actually sit by this landline mm-hmm. and freaking if if you wanted to like not miss a call mm-hmm. and like if you wanted to be right on the spot, you couldn't just go out and enjoy your life and do that kind of thing. So, right. so if you were Linda, 
or if you, as a person in general, like what do you think would be an acceptable amount of time for somebody to wait to call after a significant date like Steve and Linda had? Oh, I, I would, like, what, I would, what would want to call the long? next day. Like, what's this waiting? What are you waiting for? We just had yeah. sex. Call me again. Like it, the door is open for you to call now <laughs> would be my, yeah. my mode of thinking. So yeah. I think reassurance after sex, like, is super important, yeah, too. You know right? what I mean? If you're not calling right after, like, you can just leave somebody vulnerable to having all these types of thoughts. For like, sure. Yeah. 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 And actually, I think in some ways that might be harder in the era of, like, social media, like, where you can see if somebody's online. Mm. And, like, if they're online and they haven't gotten in touch with you, it's like, what? What? What's going on? Like, why haven't you gotten in touch with me? You know what I mean? Yeah. Or like being ghosted and like, you know, that somebody has been online and they're still not talking to you. That's just, uh, that's sucks. Yeah. At least back in the day, you could just make up a story like, well, maybe this person like was in a traffic accident and like, you had no idea where they were, you know, if you didn't call them yourself right? right. and they didn't pick up. Isn't that weird? Anyway. Like everybody can know where you're at. It's so weird. It's just another one of those. Time is strange. You know, th- technology yeah. is strange and what we knew before to what we do now. Anyway. Okay. So let's go on to one of the most interesting technologies in here. And I've never experienced this one myself. Um, I don't think you probably have either video dating. (laughs) So Debbie's main function in the movie is to be the person who goes on a video date. Mm -hmm. And um, the company that she's going to go on the video date with is expect the best, which is probably based on the one I researched for um, this episode. Great expectations. Yeah. Um, I love the video date appointment. So she goes to this place with all these wigs and costumes and this lady says she's going to make her over. And then she says for like $10 more or $20 more or something, you can get this guy over here to direct your video. And she says, he's the next Martin Scorsese. (laughs) (laughs) And it's Tim Burton. Oh man. Yeah. How funny. I recognized him too. I recognized him when I was watching. I'm like, shit, that's Tim Burton. Yeah. And and I love the the resulting video you get from the next Martin Scorsese is just a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Like it opens like it's all with Debbie. It opens where she's in the shower, like in Psycho. Then it moves to this like weird extreme close up with her hands next to her face and intercut with these like erotic lingerie shots. Uh-huh. And then the best part, she's flying over. She appears to be flying over Seattle in a pink suit, telling about like her likes and dislikes and like what job she works. And then like. The end is come to where the flavor is come to Debbie country, <laughs> which is like a Marlboro country, like reference and a reference to the smoking ads. <laughs> Perfection. It's, it's terrible. Oh my gosh. The responses that she gets back are equally hilarious. There's a bodybuilder who wants emotion, you know, he wants emotional connection. But when you look like me, no one expects that you want it. And he's just gigantic. And then there's this uh, artist who's, you know, wants meticulousness and appearance. And actually, I think he would probably be a good fit for her. He's like, I want intensity and emotion. And just as outrageous as she is. Wait, where does he, he, does he say he wants intensity and emotion? I think that's a different guy. Well, anyway, keep going. Anyway, I don't remember. They're all, they're all. Uh, oh, and then there's, there's this guy who's like got a balloon and he's doing this metaphor about geez. love while he pops this balloon. There's this guy who wants somebody who's unpredictable and experimental. Oh yeah. Um, That's the guy, the guy who I'm says, of. am I too intense? Am I too intense? I can be laid back, intensely laid back too, or something. <laughs> and then bicycle guy whose line is, I'm looking for someone who feels the same way I do about a bicycle. And then we end on, 
I am very, very, very lonely. <laughs> and bicycle guy, he's the, he's from thirty something. I forgot his name, but he oh, was okay. he was, you know, kind of a hot actor around then. And when he shows her friends, when she shows her friends the video, they all unanimously choose bicycle guy. But like, I don't think I would have chosen bicycle guy. Do you want to guess who I would have chosen? <laughs> who would you have chosen? I don't know. Well. First, I went with the artist guy. The artist I'm guy. like, well, at least he's an artist, right? Uh-huh. Like, you know, he's got something going on. Like, but then, like, my husband thought emotional bodybuilder guy was good. And I was like, you know what? I would give emotional bodybuilder a chance because, <laughs> you know, maybe he is a pretty cool guy. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Seemed harmless enough. Yeah. What about you? Would you choose bicycle guy out of these guys? You know, I remember thinking that when I watched it when I was younger and this time I was like, I don't know what's so great about him. I guess he seemed quote unquote normal, but like, I don't know. I'm looking for someone who feels the same way I do about a bicycle. Like, I <laughs> know yeah, what a weird thing to say. I don't Unless know. you were like obsessed with bicycles. I don't think it would be like, yeah, very fun. like, okay, you and your bike. I don't know. So, so, and so you have to choose one. Imagine uh, that you just have uh, a bodybuilder. Okay. Okay. We're going to give him a chance. Yeah. Very good. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. And to case in point about, you'd have to be obsessed with bicycles to prepare for her date with bicycle guy. Debbie gets outfitted in this huge, like bicycling outfit, like with the like Lycra and everything and like matching everything. And this, she's biking all over Seattle, which would be hard as hell. Seattle is not a bicycling friendly city. There's so many hills. You see her on like one of the hills at one point, but like, it's just hills all over. Like, and she's, she first bikes to the wrong restaurant because there's two of them. Then she bikes to the right restaurant, but he's already left. Then she bikes home. And lo and behold, what does she find? Bicycle guy and her roommate, like flirting, joking, making popcorn together. Debbie is pissed. And she's like, let's like, let's look at this package you got, Pam, on the, on the porch or whatever. And so finally she's out there with her roommate. The guy hears all of this and they negotiate a price for like how much like uh, Pam can buy the guy off of her for. And she starts the bidding at $200. Debbie starts at $200 because that's how much she paid for him, which I thought she got that as a gift, but whatever. And then um, they eventually get it down to Pam offers. What is it? $80 and I'll do the dishes all month. (laughs) (laughs) Dishes are serious business, man. Yeah. Anyway, bicycle guy uh, is sold. So (laughs) that's funny. And I hope it works out for her, for him and Pam. I really do. Yeah. Why not? (laughs) So about video dating. So I looked into it a little bit to find out when this all started. And the first video dating company was in New York and it was called video mate launched in 1975 And then in 1976, Great Expectations, probably the most successful video dating company opened, and they were in the West Coast. Their slogan was, no more wasted time in singles bars, no more losers. (laughs) It eventually became a franchise, and it was actually pretty expensive. So according to Vox... By 1986, customers were paying $625 for the lower tier, a six-month plan where people could only submit their own cassette tapes but not browse through the others. And you had to pay $2,000 to both submit a tape and browse other people's. So Debbie is getting a bargain uh, video dating company here. Whoa. That's a ton of money, man. Yeah, and apparently you would go to these places, like their franchises, and you would go there to watch the videotapes in these booths. 
they would have like a library of them on the shelf. Whoa. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Yeah. Wowzers. So, and a study on video dating conducted in 1992, the year singles came out, found that there were 600 video dating services operating in the U.S. Wow. And let's see. And then, of course, as the 90s wore on, video dating was replaced by online dating. I guess Kiss.com was either the first or one of the first online dating services in 94, and then Match.com in 95. And it just took over because it was cheaper, you know, For sure. like you yeah. and free in a lot of cases. So, yeah. But now, especially with the pandemic, we have dating apps that are actually encouraging users to add videos to their profiles uh-huh. or to engage in video chat before meeting in person. Yeah. So we're kind of turning back around a little bit. Although now, of course, it's live and you don't have to have this like prepackaged, cheesy, like flying over Seattle thing. Good grief. <laughs> so, all right, we're going to now begin the spoiler section. This is kind of arbitrary because like, I don't think there are a ton of spoilers to be had in this movie, but if you haven't seen the movie, you don't want to get spoiled. Leave now. (laughs) Okay. All right. So we now get to another subplot where Janet, because Cliff is not paying much attention to her, decides that she might get breast implants. And man, this, 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 I felt this because like, I remember there was a lot of pressure in the nineties to have big breasts and I did not have them. Um, I just remember like Baywatch came out in 1989. You had the whole Pamela Anderson thing, mm-hmm. Claudia Schiffer guest ads. I used to have one of those like posted on my like wall. Yeah. Like there's this one picture where she's in this black bustier and her, her breasts are really prominent. And I thought like that was the epitome of like feminine beauty. And like, I wanted to be like that. Like, I just, I really relate to that Janet feeling like, well, maybe this is why, Mm -hmm. you know, Cliff doesn't like me. Like, I never would have gotten breast implants myself. Just like, I think it's a combination of like, just being averse to risky surgeries, but also like, having a very high value on naturalism Mm -hmm. and, and being who I am. Yeah, but I understand like the yearning, the, the, the thinking that if you just change this one thing, that you'll be desirable. I, I understand that on Janet's part. So, and Allure magazine backs this up too. They said, to D or not to D. In the early 90s, this was hardly even a question. Bigger was considered better. Women all across America were going up a cup size or two or three. Man. <laughs> uh, well, I feel like it changes. Like it was boobs. I mean, how many things do you see where people are doing stuff to their face? The Botox, the lip injection crap, the butt, the Brazilian butt lift, quote unquote. I saw I was watching a whole thing on that. And people will go to other countries to and pay to get, I don't know, fat shoved in their butts. And then it's like they don't know what happens later on. Like it doesn't stay there. You know, it changes. And then what happens to your butt that I just. I, I've never been a fan of what people will do for, to themselves for these yeah. images. That makes me sad too. Yeah. Do you remember though? Do you remember this like um, this breast thing in the nineties, or did it not stick out to you? I, I, you know, I I just kind of put it under the umbrella of all of that commenting on commentary on women's bodies, you know. And I remember okay. on Baywatch because we used to watch it. There was the one flat chested one. <laughs> oh, there was. Yep, okay. there was one flat chest in which she had representation. Um, well, that's good. But it felt so very much like, see, we got a flat chested woman here, but she wasn't the like the hottie. She was. I don't know if she ever even had like a love story. You know, um, I yeah, just think that's kind of. You know funny. what? I actually remember like 
this is really sad. And like, to his credit, the guy I lost my virginity to was not a jerk about it at all. But like, I remember I was actually like making out on the night that I lost my virginity. I apologized for how small my breasts were when I was getting undressed. But he was not like he he did not like play into that at all. Like he was happy with my body, right? Uh-huh. And and was never a jerk about any of that. But like I that's how I felt about my body. That's how insecure I felt about my chest at the time. I'm like since like I've grown up and like uh-huh. my breasts have gotten a little bigger just because I've gained a little bit of weight uh-huh. as I've gotten older. But man, like I was so I was maybe like Bridget Fonda, maybe a little bigger breast, but I don't know. Like I understood completely watching this she has a conversation with cliff then in this one scene about her breasts and because she sees all these pictures of big breasted women on his walls Mm -hmm. and she said are my breasts too small for you and at first he's like no god but it like seems like he's being avoidant Mm -hmm. and then she like tells him like i can tell when you're lying like just tell me the truth and she says it again are my breasts too small for you and he goes sometimes Which I thought was kind of hilarious. No, but he was trying to be honest. Yeah. I actually thought that that was kind of endearing in a way because, like, if he was really honest, maybe he would have said yes, but, like, he didn't. He sometimes likes her breasts, maybe, and sometimes he wants a bigger breasted woman. I thought he was just doing his best. Like, yeah, I suppose. He was trying. He Mm. was trying. I mean, that's all. You shouldn't, I don't think people should ask questions like that about their bodies unless they want an honest answer, to be honest. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, that's if fair. Because yeah. if somebody lies to you, you can probably tell. Right. And if somebody, um, you know, tells you the truth and you didn't want to hear it, well, you did ask. Right. Like, sometimes you just have to be like, it's too bad if my breasts aren't big enough for you. They're the breasts I have. And like, you're going to love me. And maybe there's something you don't like, but who cares? This is the package you get. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's the kind of attitude you have to have eventually. For sure. 100%. Because no, who doesn't have insecurities? You know, like, I think I kind of that was something that I was a, a growing up thing for me, like thinking about all just like, I don't know, bodies can be gross and just the gross things that happen to them. Like, I just figured like, I want someone to love me for all of those things and not then judge other people for those things too. So that was kind yeah. of a wake up thing for me. Like to be like, ew, he sweats so much or ew, he, I don't know, had nose hairs or something like everybody has those things. So yeah. just let it go. And like, yeah, yep, we all have, we, we all, all have like um, pluses and minuses in our physical beings. Right. And yeah. Yeah. And over time, those things will change and we'll get older and yeah. Right. Yeah. So in any case, though, Janet is not there yet. She is uh, still thinking that like changing herself physically is going to be what gets her cliff. So she goes to visit a plastic surgeon who's played by Bill Pullman. This is really early in Bill Pullman's career. This is before Sleepless in Seattle and While You Were Sleeping. He had been Lone Star in Spaceballs, which I didn't really realize until I looked at his IMDb. And I was like, no way. That's right. He was the guy in Spaceballs. Yep. (laughs) But but yeah, this was really early Bill Pullman. And he's I think he's adorable in this role, to be honest. At the time, and when it first came out when I was young, I didn't I didn't see I didn't see Bill Pullman. I didn't see him for who he is. Now I'm like Dude, Janet should have totally gone for the surgery. Yes. <laughs> yes. I ship them now. Yes. That, I'm like, forget, forget yes. Cliff, girl. Like, yes. you got a plastic surgeon who's interested in you. Like, yeah. date him. Who thinks like, you're perfect yeah. and beautiful and wouldn't change a thing. Son of a bitch. Yeah. Why wouldn't you go for that? My God. 
Fools. I mean, it is professionally inappropriate if we think about it in the strictest terms, yes. especially today. Yes. Because like he actually takes her aside and he's like, I wouldn't normally say this, but like you're perfect the way you are. You don't need to get this surgery. Right. If your boyfriend doesn't love you for her as you are, he doesn't deserve you basically. Right. And like, and, and, but then she kind of like, like she, she doesn't like go for him. She's like, I love my boyfriend, but then she does play with his hair to try to give him a different part uh-huh. and also gives him a kiss on the cheek, yeah. which is adorable. Is. But yeah, I'm totally with you, Sophia. I'm like, go for the plastic surgery guy. Like, seriously. Like <laughs> he's mature. He's got his poop together. Like, you know, good grief. Yes. And he's cute. He's cute. So, yeah, but he wasn't he wasn't cool in the early 90s though. He was the yuppie guy, yeah. not the cool grunge music guy. So, yeah. <laughs> Mercy. And around the same time we find out about Janet needs a guy who says bless you and she's hanging out with Cliff and his bandmates. Cliff is obsessing because a show didn't go well. He only wants to talk about the music. His bandmates are all watching a B documentary <laughs> and not paying attention to him. Right. And Janet's trying to be supportive. But then Janet sneezes. Cliff doesn't say bless you. She sneezes again. And instead of saying bless you, he says, oh, don't get me sick. I got to play a show. Yeah. And this is Janet's wake up call. Yeah. She's like, oh, this guy isn't for me. Yeah. So she breaks up with him, but you don't really see a breakup. She just I think it's more like probably she just fades out on him. Yeah. And just stops returning his calls. Yeah. But she's like, I don't have, yeah. I don't need to be here. What am I doing? Um, I do have to say it's really funny. Like he hands her a Kleenex box and he's like, babe, uh, don't get me sick. I got a, I got a concert. And he like kind of indicates to his throat. Like he doesn't want to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sick. It's so funny. It's such a funny gesture and it's perfect. So self-absorbed yeah. and, uh, and she gets it. She gets out of there. For me, Matt Dillon is the humor of this movie and Bridget Fonda is the heart of this movie. And Steven, and for me, Kara Cedric and, and like, um, Campbell Scott, who you think is creepy. Yeah. They just like, uh, they don't do much for me. Like I'm the dialogue is good, but I don't feel invested in them the same. I wish there had actually been more Cliff and Janet. Mm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. What about you? Uh, Yeah. I feel Linda and Steve are like the grownups in it. And I um, think that, Janet and Cliff are kind of the kids and I don't know. I really liked both their storylines. So Steve and Linda are adults get back together, but soon Linda is afraid she's pregnant. And then we, Oh my God, this is so tropey. The tropey is trope. Then they have the obligatory scene where they buy like six pregnancy tests. Right. Just no, you need one pregnancy <laughs> test at all. Just, just buy one. And then if you doubt the results, go to the Planned Parenthood or whatever doctor and get it done by a doctor. Okay. (laughs) Just don't buy like every movie. Right. right? Right. And then also every movie you have the cashier does something awkward. At least it's not a price check this time. Right. At least it's a little bit original. Like it's this guy who knew Steve from college or something talking about what a great DJ he was. That's (laughs) that's the Jeremy. What's it? Piven? Piven. Piven Piven. moment. And he uh, improvised that whole thing. Oh, yeah. And then they ended up having to pay like a ton of money for like the rights to these songs that he was singing during the really? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's hilarious. That's really funny. But it was brilliant. So it turns out Linda is pregnant, according to this pregnancy test. They're like worried at first. um, But then Steve asks Linda to marry him and she says yes. Um, They then begin to have doubts again when they go to a movie and a baby is crying. (laughs) Or a a toddler (laughs) is crying, rather. A toddler. Yeah. That's real (laughs) shit right there. Oh, my God. But then, sadly, they get in a car accident, like, 
right after that. And Linda loses the baby. And like, to me, that's a little tropey too. I honestly, like, I don't think an accident of that nature would necessarily cause a pregnancy loss, but you know, what do I know? But, and it's also a little convenient for the plot, but yeah. Yeah. So this leads Linda then to kind of like get really emotional, like as like a miscarriage might make somebody and all this confusion. She decides to like be alone for a while and go on this one month boat expedition to Alaska that she had planned earlier in the movie. And then when she gets back, um, even though Steve and Linda have clearly missed each other while they were out of each other's company, they both chicken out and they both kind of say, Oh, we don't have to, you know, be what we were before and we'll be friends. And yeah. Yeah. So sad. Sad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Steve, while Linda's gone with her work, he throws himself into his work and with the super train and he gets, (laughs) he gets a meeting with the mayor, which is Tom, Skirit, love him. He's fantastic, and he's fantastic as this mayor because he's so cruel. Um, and and the mayor rejects the super train. Yeah, and just a little side note on this: like I looked into S- Seattle train history a little bit, and um, I guess now there are several commuter rail options in Seattle because gridlock was and is a real problem in Seattle. Let me tell you. The, there's now the Sounder train line begun in September 2000 and more extensions planned in the future. The Link Light Rail system opened in 2003 and also has future expansion plans. And of course, there's the Seattle monorail, which is kind of kind of not useful in the same way. Yeah. Um, it, it's more of a tourist thing. It runs between Seattle Center and Westlake Center downtown. The only one of those I've ever been on is the monorail, though, because um, I lived in Seattle I lived in Seattle right when they were starting these other train projects, actually. So I kind of just missed it. But yeah, I just wanted to see what how Seattle was doing train-wise. It's still really hard for major cities, it seems, to get public transportation because people freaking can't leave their damn cars. It's interesting because Linda like says, I, I love my car, love even my though she's car. an environmentalist. Yes. And like, and Tom Skerritt says people love their cars. It's like an ongoing theme. And then you've got the, I didn't even think about mentioning this before, but with her garage door opener and her parking space, that's real too. Because yeah. I remember when I lived in Seattle, it was very hard to find a parking space. Yeah. You'd have to park like six, seven blocks away from our apartment yeah. all the time. And then like, yeah. And then at the end of the movie, this isn't too much of a spoiler. Um, Linda comes back to Steve and well, we're in the spoiler section. Linda comes back to Steve and he's like, what took you so long? And she said, I was stuck in traffic. So it's like it all kind of comes back around yeah. to this driving, which is hilarious. Man. Anyway, so Steve rejected by Linda and uh, um, with his super train also rejected has kind of a nervous breakdown and he's alone in his house. He's eating all this fast food. Everything's a mess. And Janet comes over to check on him. And I love this line. Lee and I both like were pointing at the screen when we saw this line. He said, he goes to Janet, in modern day society, there's almost no need to leave the house at all. And we're just thinking, you don't even know the half of it, Steve. You don't know. (laughs) This is before all these apps that could deliver like everything to you, basically. And you could work from home and like the whole nine. Yeah, Yeah. I know. This like Steve is in like, peak covid work from home like except not work from home <laughs> yeah did you have that too when you saw that yeah 100 percent. anyway after steve says this janet says steve you're wigan <laughs> <laughs> do you remember when everyone said wigan out all the time yeah. oh my god yep nobody says that anymore <laughs> <You're> wigan. <laughs> that was awesome too 
Okay, so yeah, and Linda, meanwhile, has gotten back, back together with her ex Andy, with whom she had this passionless relationship, and he's he's so funny. Like Steve refers to him as sensitive ponytail guy, and that's totally what he is. Yep. Like, yep. Yep. So in our, in one of our last references to the old tech in this episode, um, Steve th- like does go out. Or maybe this is before he uh, he stays in his house. I don't remember. In any case, at one point, Steve does try to reach Linda uh-huh. and leave a message on her answering machine about how much he loves her. And like, it's kind of one of those drunken late night messages that you would leave somebody. But he's doing this from like a payphone closet at a club. Yeah. And the joke is that everybody outside the payphone closet thinks it's a restroom and keeps banging on the door. Yeah. I thought that was hilarious. Very hilarious. Very hilarious. <laughs> Did you like his just proclamation of love? Okay, it was so much like the one in Jerry Maguire. Like, if you listen to those two back to back, you can feel that they're both Cameron Crowe. Like, give it a go sometimes. Seriously, like we talked about that one. Ryan dissected it for us a little bit on our Jerry Maguire episode. If you if you put those two proclamations of love back to back, I feel like they're both very like the speaker centric too. Mm -hmm. You know, like centered on the guy making the proclamation. Yeah, and both like instead of like you complete me, he's something like you belong with me yeah <laughs> you know yeah. and it's just like very um yeah anyway, i i don't i'm i wasn't too into it but i would be into just the guy remembering me and leaving the message but yeah. um in a very like improbable incident uh linda's answering machine eats the tape of steve's thing i i had many answering machines and many tiny tapes not once did my tape get eaten okay and if i had an, a and if i had an important professional job like linda and i was going to be away in alaska for a month I'd probably invest in a new answering machine to not eat my tapes Yeah. also. So I found that very improbable. <laughs> yeah. Nice, nice convenient, uh, convenient <laughs> thing there. Yeah. So Linda never does hear his uh, proclamation of love made from the payphone closet, unfortunately. <sighs> yes. But finally she gets her poop together and goes over and it says that line that was nowhere near your neighborhood. And he's like, what took you so long? I was caught in traffic. Oh, love reunited. Yeah, so she uses the same line on him that he used on her, which is a very movie thing to do, Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. I respect that. I respect that. And yeah, and they're together. And we later find out that they are like um, moving in together because one of the apartments is now vacant because Steve is moving out to get a place with Linda. Yeah. Yeah. And we get this narration from uh, Cliff. He's like, they're moving out. I feel like he then ties up everybody's story, you know? Yeah, it kind of does. Yeah. Where like the other people started it and he's finishing it um, because Debbie now has met somebody. Oh, Victor Garber. And um, he keeps delivering flowers to her. He's trying to get back with Janet. Like he's feeling her absence and she's like, whatever, we're friends. And, you know, she keeps blowing him off, which is really strong and good of her, you know? She says, I'm finally yeah. over you. Oh, and then we get that one hilarious scene where Cliff like tries to win her over by replacing her car stereo. <laughs> so he brings her outside and she's got this little car and, and he puts this huge stereo system in it. And he keeps cranking up the volume on this like grunge music louder and louder. And until all the windows in her car explode. Yep. And the look on Matt Dillon's face in that scene is 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 like his look of dismay. Yeah. God, he's so funny in this movie. Yeah. And he he leaves a message on Janet's machine. You know, this, this song that he's singing, I'm walking down the avenue. I've always thought that was a riot. And he's like, I don't know. I'm working on it. Blah, blah, blah. And she just like 
skips it. She's over it. Pretty yeah. cute. But finally, um, they do end up getting back together. Like first after Cliff makes this big speech to her about like how he misses her. And then he says, Janet, you rock my world. I think that's the first thing that like kind of turns her head a little bit. Yeah. And then the second thing, they're in the elevator together. And he says he likes her, her hat first. But but then she sneezes and he says, bless you. Yep. And, they <laughs> and that's it. Okay, so anyway, um, yeah, so Janet and Cliff get back together. Steve and Linda are together. Debbie's together with the guy. She meets in Mexico who loves her earrings that only she likes. Yep. And the film then ends with the voices of sing- other singles that we've never met um, from all over the city just talking over the skyline. And I kind of like that ending. It was kind of put in near the end, but I think it just ties the film together. I liked it as well. So one one last thing I want to talk about um, before we give some final opinions in our double features is just like with 10 Things I Hate About You, which we already covered on the show, there are a ton of interesting Seattle locations in the movie. So I just wanted to touch on some of them briefly. So first of all, the singles apartment still is there today. Um, last I checked, it is the Coriel Court Apartment Building at 1820 East Thomas Avenue on the corner of 19th and East Thomas Avenue in the Capitol Hill neighborhood. And I lived in the Capitol Hill neighborhood when I lived in Seattle. And it's possible I passed this apartment building and had no idea because I wasn't like a super fan of singles or anything. Right. But apparently tons of people go there and <laughs> are like taking pictures and just walking past all the time. And it's kind of annoying to the people who live there. And in fact, in 2015, a local artist tried to stage an event to screen singles on a little TV VCR in the courtyard of the apartment building, but he did not have permission from anyone who lived there. So, and, and eventually like 2000 people had responded to his Facebook event, but he ended up having to cancel the event because the landlord and everyone in the apartment building was like against it. And it was like this big thing oh. in Seattle. Oh. Isn't that funny? That's hilarious. I love that. And yeah, I would have like, gone. I would have okay. shown up. I'd be like, yeah, it's on the VCR. <laughs> but if you ever like happen to be in Seattle, just try to be respectful of the people living in the building at the same time. Okay. So if you ever want to walk by, like, you know, don't take pictures of people's windows if you can help it. Like maybe be across the street. So yeah, that's fair. Yeah. That's very good. They're just trying to live their life. Yeah. And other locations from the movie. So the Java, Java Stop coffee shop where Janet and Cliff work. Um, doesn't exist, never existed as a coffee shop and doesn't exist in the same form today. It was though filmed at the OK Hotel, which was a famous club and hotel in Pioneer Square. And it's the place where Nirvana first played Smells Like Teen Spirit to, to, the, to an audience. And But that closed in 2001 after it was damaged by the 2001 Nisqually earthquake. And since then, it's been, I think, rebuilt as apartments, and then it's going to be redeveloped again. So there's nothing resembling that there anymore, in any case. Um, one place that is still open, there's a club where some of the people in the movie go to see music called Rebar at 1114 Howell Street. That still exists, but it's currently closed due to COVID. Uh, the place where Campbell Scott and Kara Sedgwick have lunch together, or water, is still there. It's called the Virginia Inn, and it's part of the Pike Place Market Complex. We briefly see Gasworks Park, which we also see in 10 Things I Hate About You. And, oh, and I love this. There's a statue bench. So at one point, Linda is talking with her friend Ruth on a bench. And there's a statue of a guy, like an old man, like kind of with his hands behind his head. So that's at 4th and Lenora, still exists. Um, It's across the street from the Cinerama movie theater. And the name of the statue is He. It was created in 1979 by Howard Garnitz. 
And across the street, sort of, or across the square, there's another statue called She. So that's something you could visit. And there's others. Uh, one last site is the Jimi Hendrix's grave is located at the Greenwood Memorial Park in Renton. So you see Cliff like posing with Jimi Hendrix's grave early in the movie. So cool. I love that little statue. I would go and take a picture next to it. And I'd find she too. So between this episode and our 10 things I hate about you episode, we've given you a pretty good Seattle Tacoma area, a travel agenda. I think I totally <laughs> want to go. I've never been. Yeah. Some, I think that would be a great post COVID um, pandemic, like, you know, visiting mm-hmm. place. Yeah. Yeah. So let's um, wrap up the movie, our thoughts about it. I want to know, were you satisfied by the ending of the movie? Is there anything you would change? Y- yes, I'm satisfied. But I, uh, there is a part of me that wishes Janet had gone with, you know, the plastic surgeon. So Yeah, how, same. Yeah. I mean, it would never have happened in a 1992 movie. That would have been selling out. For but- sure. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So now we're going to go to our double feature recommendations. And um, I think let's do them in a batch this time, shall we? Yeah. Okay. So my double feature recommendations. um, So first I want to recommend another movie with Matt Dillon from a similar time period. So I want to recommend Drugstore Cowboy. And this was from 1989, directed by Gus Van Sant. And Matt Dillon is the lead character. And I had never seen this movie before. I watched it specifically to try to find things to watch with singles. And it is very good. I'm really sad that I never watched it before because it was um, filmed in Portland and set in Portland, um, set in the 70s, but filmed, you know, in the late 80s. And it's also so it's got the similar Pacific Northwest vibe and like catching like a scene of people kind of living on the edge of society. Um, Matt Dillon's performance is really good, although It is somewhat not, it's not similar, obviously, to Cliff in like all this over the top doofiness, but his like voice and delivery and appearance are often very similar Mm. in movies, I would say. Mm. But it's still good. It's still a good, heartfelt performance. And I just think it would be really cool to watch another movie set in the Pacific Northwest um, with Matt Dillon about a countercultural scene. Yeah. And incidentally, Gus Van Sant apparently is in one of the scenes in singles. I think he's helping to move a couch. Ah, So fantastic. (laughs) There's another connection. My second double feature recommendation. I was going to wait to see if you chose it, but I chose Shag because you get more Bridget Fonda Mm -hmm. also in 1989, but in a very dissimilar movie to Drugstore Cowboy. Um, Shag is basically a coming of age story about four girls living in the South in the sixties. And I will say that like, by today's standards, I should probably put a content warning that like there are Confederate flags in this movie, but the characters themselves, it's more about their friendships and about being young women together. Uh-huh. And Bridget Fonda's performance is fantastic. It really shows you the kind of star power she has. Mm-hmm. And the movie stays with me just because the female friendships are so strong and the romances I admire in the movie too. Same. Bridget Fonda doesn't really have as much of a romance, but she's got a story about trying to be an actress, which mm-hmm. is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And I did watch a couple other Bridget Fonda things, but like I watched single white female, but like that is like a weird movie and disturbing. Like it's not bad, but it's pretty disturbing. Her performance is good, but I would not watch it with singles. <laughs> like no, Yeah. And and this is somebody who's telling you to watch Drugstore Cowboy with singles, too. So just it's more disturbing than that. Just put it that way. So then my final double feature recommendation is another movie in Seattle. So 
uh, 10 Things I Hate About You, made just seven years after, or at least released just seven years after um, singles, but it's like a totally different Seattle. Hmm. It really shows you like kind of the change in the zeitgeist in Seattle and just that time period or the change in the zeitgeist in youth in America in just a short period of time. And granted, you're going from like people in their 20s and 30s to high school. Mm -hmm. But still, I just feel like the color scheme, the music, everything is just shifted a little bit by 1999. And not always in a bad way either. And I also like that in, in the 1999, 10 Things I Hate About You, you get more of the Riot Girl kind of music and energy mm-hmm. from Kat's character. So I think those would be really cool bookends, um, both beautiful Seattle scenery, singles you see more in the fall, like the kind of rainy side of Seattle, 10 Things I Hate About You, you see that beautiful Seattle summertime sun. So I think just a great companion piece, really. Nice. So I'll try to do this like in date order. The first one I recommend, as I said before, St. Elmo's Fire. And that's sometime in the 80s. I don't remember when. But I love it for its friendship as family and these um, young people just out of school. That was in 85. But it's still, isn't that, that's still Gen X though, isn't it? Oh, yeah. That's Gen X as well. It's it's Gen X. What a weird time period because 85 is so different from... 92 which is so different even from like 96 i think so anyhow that's it's a bunch of young college just recently graduated college people trying to build their lives after college and the, yeah but the brett peck is rob lowe and judd uh nelson oh what's your face demi moore andrew mccarthy in it? what isn't ali sheedy in it too ali sheedy yes so okay there's that one so jumping ahead now, um, in 95, I recommend Empire Records. Um, this is a younger group of people. This is like high school kids, but I love it so much. I love it because the music is great. I have that soundtrack. And um, I love these these group of kind of misfit friends uh, also trying to figure out their lives in a way and what they want to be and what they want to do. And it all takes place in a day at a music store, (laughs) a music shop. Oh, fantastic. Um, And that has a young Liv Tyler. Uh, She's probably the most famous. Oh, and a young Renee Zellweger. My goodness. Good cast. And then um, in 1996, um, Rent came out and I was working at my coffee shop, my coffee shop job and Time Magazine had this couple um, on the cover and it was new musical rent. And, um, I was like, what in the world? And I took that magazine home. I still have it. And I absolutely fell in love with rent. Another kind of young bohemian group of people this time, obviously in New York city, um, all friends, friends, like family, chosen family, trying to make it in, in the world as artists and, um, life and death and things like that so there was a movie made of it it was okay it is most of the original cast um but just get a hold of the uh the soundtrack the 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 music oh so you're not recommending so okay so you're not recommending the movie you're recommending the musical the soundtrack to rent is a double feature yeah like just i mean yeah listen to the to the musical on tape on cd i had the cd no i lent it to a friend and her bag got stolen so i never replaced it but it's on spotify you know you can stream it (laughs) okay okay Mm -hmm. so yeah everybody thanks for listening today sophia thanks for joining again and being my gen x reinforcement and um 
We'll be doing some great movies coming up. Um, we'll be doing True Romance, Reality Bites, uh, hopefully Go Fish. I'm still working on a co-host for that, Chasing Amy. And yeah, we're looking forward to covering the rest of Gen X with you. So thanks for listening. Bye.